Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Christy Jansen, Chief of Staff here at the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brudico, the Academy's President and Founder. Also joining us today is Benjamin Schwartz, our production intern for the radio show. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We're recording this show on August 14th, 2018. And before we get going, I want to invite our listeners to reach out to us at info at worldbusiness.org if you have questions or comments about the show today, or if you have anything you'd like to ask or us to discuss in the future. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like the show, please rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, or however you're listening. It'll help more people find us. So anyway, uh, lately global free trade has been under attack, both rhetorically and politically. And some might ask why we should care. Uh, On the show today, we take a look at the history of trade and what makes free trade in a globalized world. We'll focus on the multilateral agreements that are in the news often lately, notably Brexit and NAFTA. And then we'll check in on a few key economic indicators, in particular, currency fluctuations in the developing world. We'll end with a discussion about the best way to weather the coming economic storm, spend some time on reliable investment practices, and try to stay optimistic. All right, so Ronaldo, we hear a lot from certain quarters about the dangers of the trade deficit and the negative impact free trade has on jobs and other aspects of the, of the economy. I just wanted to ask the question, what are we really talking about here? What is free trade? The first thing I want to suggest is, uh, and Benjamin, our producer, had came up with a list of five pages of questions after questions on this topic that were in great detail. And I looked at him and I said, you know, this is a great subject, but I think we should start with real simplicity, do some general explanations. And then if people want us to go deeper in subsequent shows, I would love to, because this is something that not only am I personally very interested in, free trade touches on all the global issues, including international monetary supply, the international monetary system, which the academy's worked in for years. It touches on everything from domestic policy to international relations. So I would love to spend more time on this if the audience wants to hear more. But for today, let's just kind of set the table for the conversation. Where did free trade start? Now, I want you to drop back for a second and think of the world 90,000, 100,000 years ago. In that world, somebody, somewhere, they think it might have been pigs in China, by the way, decided that they would specialize and just raise pigs and not grow other stuff. Now, back in those days, particularly in the Middle East, the first grain crop, I think, was called groats, G-R-O-A-T-S, which is a form of barley. So some guy down the road was growing groats, and he was full-time occupied with as much groats as he could grow. But of course, he had to have some protein, too, to survive. And the pig farmer, he was down the road of his. And the pig farmer was so busy growing his pigs that he could not grow groats. So a third person entered the scene called a business person. And they said, I'll tell you what, Mr. Pig Farmer, I'll take your pig down to the groat farmer. I will trade it for a bunch of groats and I will bring them back to you and I'll charge you a commission for the service. That was the first business transaction in the world. That's what business did. It lubricated the transaction between the pig seller and the groat farmer because neither one could leave their farm or their pig farm in order to go exchange. Now, if you think of that world, 
And there were no boundaries. There were no nation states back then, 10,000 years ago. There wasn't even any nations. There were no nations prior to 1650. And that would be being generous because the Prussians were the first one that led to the modern state of Germany. So if you're saying something's been around for like 400 years max, that's all. In all the rest of human history, no nation states existed. It was about a guy with a pig down the road and a guy with some groats down the road. The difference is down the road means something different today. So free trade was the guy with the pigs able to get the groats, and the guy with the groats getting the pig, and somebody getting a transaction fee in the middle called the business person. Because there weren't any nations, they didn't call it free trade. They just called it trade because it was what people did. And if you go back, I'm going to say pre-Egyptian, so we're back at least 3,000 years ago, what you're going to find is people constantly were trading. Fishermen were trading with farmers. And farmers were trading with orchard growers. That was free trade. That is free trade. Why did they do that? For the same reason we trade today. Some guys, some women are better at fishing, and some are better at growing groats, and some are better at raising pigs, and you learn how to specialize. And if you do your specialty well, you create a surplus that you can use to buy the other people's stuff. And that's the nature of what trade has been for millennia. Now, we got confused when we created nation states because we started thinking us and them. So the pig farmer didn't think he was an us, and the other guy was a them, the groat farmer. They were just down the road. And what people need to do when they come to this conversation of free trade is they have to think of the fact that we are all in this together. And what we're trying to do is do what we each do best and trade for what we don't do best so we can have a little bit of everything. That's what free trade's about. Now, implicit in what I just said is a confusing term called globalization. And so globalization is the fact that today we live in a world where everything is global, meaning electrons don't respect nation state boundaries, Airplanes don't, even trains you could say in many cases. So we live in a world where what was down the road to the farmer 10,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago in Egypt, what those people had a vision of them on the other side of the transaction as people in a common relationship for their mutual economic benefit. Globalization is the fact that we all live in one world whether we like it or not, and that's not going to change, and that's not something you can volunteer to be interrupted. It is. Free trade is the question of whether in a global context we should be trying to control what people make somewhere versus somewhere else by using artificial barriers to the inhibition of commerce. Now, that's what every trade tariff is. It's an artificial barrier for the inhibition of commerce. Protectionism. Protectionism. Protecting now, one group or one... Nation, Industry, one nation against others. On the against. theory that there is another, when in fact there is no other because we're global. <laughs> it's kind of silly when you realize we're global, whether we like it or not, so then you go, okay. So I guess what we ought to do is we ought to figure out how to efficiently trade between ourselves. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. The real question here that people need to look at is, if we are in a global society, and that's irrefutable, how do we want to conduct our commerce and our actual creation of goods and services in that global reality so as to maximize the benefit of to all, including ourselves. Now, we can talk about what's the trade balance, how does that figure, what is the trade surplus, all those things are all great sub-questions. But the real issue is this, in a global economy, globalization is real, and it's not something you get to vote on, it's here. Now the only intelligent question is, what do we do about that? And I'll give you one last example, and then let's do some questions. The freer trade is, the easier it is to trade what you do well with what someone else does well, the easier that is, 
the higher the rate of income in both places. In other words, both of us do better. The harder it is, the worse we both do. You want to know what it looks like when it gets really ugly? It's called Smooth-Hawley, and that's the beginning of the Great Depression. Right. You want to look at what it looks like when it does it really well? Probably the European Union in 1995 to 2015. Mm -hmm. Now, that approach is best exemplified by the making of garments. There was a time where every country was able to economically make its own garments. And what happened was some countries got so sophisticated they could no longer afford to put their labor into making something as cheap as a shirt or a dress. And so that country, in this case Great Britain in the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. said, gee, we'll make the machines that make the clothes, called sewing machines, because the U.S. was the first sewing machine manufacturer as well, and we'll sell those sewing machines to people in other countries, like Europe, who will make the clothes. And then they'll get to use labor who's less sophisticated, they know how to sew, but they don't know how to make sewing mm -hmm. machines. What happened is you got a dramatic increase in the amount of clothes being manufactured and decreasing cost. So the people buying the clothes who make sewing machines were actually getting them cheaper. And the people who bought the sewing machines to make clothes were actually making a living. And that happens over and over again. So if you look at today, the year of 2018, you will see that the making of clothes, if you track it around the world, you can see which economies are rising. It was until 15 years ago you would get your clothes made in China because they had the cheapest labor. And so we sold the most sewing machines and what was called in those days processing equipment, which mm -hmm. is another form of accelerated sewing. We sold it to China. And China then used it to employ hundreds of millions of people who came up out of poverty at very low wages to be able to make clothes that we could buy at Walmart for next to nothing. That was a win. Now, what happened? Well, the Chinese successfully raised the wages of their people to the point where they couldn't afford to make clothes anymore. So now where are they being made? They moved to Vietnam at first. Now they're in Bangladesh. And what happens is, as they go around the world moving to cheaper and cheaper labor markets, more and more labor markets got into the world of international commerce, and a rising tide lifts all boats, and therefore all did better. And even as bad as it is in Bangladesh today, with the sweatshops that they have, remember we had sweatshops here as late mm -hmm. as 1930, those sweatshops actually were a way to get to the middle class, and we in the United States, up until Trump, did something profoundly beneficial. We basically made it impossible to run a pure sweatshop. So what we did is we said, if you make clothes with a better margin of safety and money for your employees, we'll buy them from you, and if you don't, we'll be embarrassed and we'll go to someplace and even pay a little more. Well, this actually leads us into one of our other questions, which is tied to the loss of manufacturing jobs, often the stated reason Trump uses for his protectionism. Can you talk a little bit about free trade being blamed for the loss of manufacturing jobs? First of all, why is manufacturing a sacred cow? Let's talk about manufacturing. We were the manufacturing powerhouse after World War II until roughly 1980. We discovered a thing called electronics. In fact, in the 70s, we created Silicon Valley. And we started making more money than we could even... We didn't have enough zeros to add up all the money we were making in Silicon Valley. And we ended up getting richer and richer by manufacturing less and less. So I got to tell you, if you go to Silicon Valley and say, would you guys like to go back to manufacturing or do you want to keep doing Google? Guess what their answer is going to be. Now, why did that happen? Because as your labor force becomes increasingly educated and increasingly sophisticated, what you can make with an hour of your time goes up. So it's not a good use of your time. If you were to take Elon Musk and say, you just get tied to that machine. You just keep making more machines, Elon. He's going to laugh in your face. He's a billionaire. He would rather come up with great ideas that can make billions of dollars 
then go work in a factory for somebody else, like a bad Charlie Chaplin movie from the 30s, which, by the way, Modern Times was the name of the Charlie Chaplin movie. So manufacturing is okay if it's in service to something bigger. Example, we're missing the biggest opportunity right now in the world. We are not leading any longer the robotic revolution in manufacturing. Now remember, artificial intelligence was taught for the first time in the world at Stanford University by my dear partner and co-founder of the Academy, Willis Harmon. And when he taught artificial intelligence, he could see coming the way that machines would get smarter. In that, he could see entire new industries. What we have to do is say to ourselves, why aren't we pushing on the advanced technologies for manufacturing, which basically use AI? For example, why are all the best, most advanced robots made in Japan when we invented them here? Why are all the best advanced systems for manufacturing coming from other countries? And the answer is because we get stuck in time. Mm-hmm. And we think of manufacturing like pounding steel in a factory, and that's crazy. There's people in the third world or the developing world who would love to do that for half the wages we pay, and our people want to make more money doing things that require more education, more sophistication, and therefore more productivity rising. How do you deal with those folks who have lost their jobs? Well, it's so obvious. It's tragic because our political leadership, for its own greedy reasons, doesn't want to articulate the truth. The truth of it is it's all about education. Mm-hmm. So I just said a minute ago, I was saying with the rising education levels, you get rising productivity levels, you get rising valuations, and you don't get mm-hmm. more. We need to have a continuous program of training like you do in a business, but we have to do it at the level of a city, county, state, country. We should be, without a question, the first country in the world to say universal free education through four years of college. In fact, of the developing world, we're one of the last. What's happening as a result? People can go to Germany, even Americans like us can go to Germany. We don't have to become a German citizen. We can get a free four-year college education. And when we do that, we might just stick around and start inventing stuff in Germany. Think about it. When I talk about Silicon Valley, I think people often forget that the founder of Google, co-founder of Google, is an immigrant. The founder of Apple's father was an immigrant. Yes. I mean, you yes. go through Steve the list. Jobs, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and Elon All Musk is an immigrant. Elon Musk, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. We had a program in this country where we bring people in for college, particularly from the Orient. And they would get their PhDs here, and they'd go, hey, this is good. Mm-hmm. Not going home. I'm going to stick here. And what happened is they increased the power of our labor force. We've lost that program, and we've got to go back. So, so what do you do with that guy who lost his job? Mm-hmm. You should commit to that guy who lost his job. We're going to not only get you a better job, you're going to make more money, and we're going to retrain you. And I'll give you one other thing we need to do. We have to get over the Protestant work ethic that says somehow we're supposed to work 50 hours a week, which, by the way, is what we work on average in this country. we got to go say, you know what? If we're making too much stuff, we should probably take some time off. And what would happen is guys like that would end up getting absorbed because we'd cut the labor force back by 10 or 20%. Instead, Mm -hmm. guys like me who should be retired are still working for a living because we can't afford to retire. You're taking up all those jobs. Right, and what you want is guys my age to quit. Now, but you take people in 65 years plus, a lot of them, a huge percentage. Cannot quit. Well, they can't afford to. They can't afford to. And because it's going to get worse in five years. Costs because still paying student loans. So. Well, don't get me started on that because student loans is just. People who don't know student loans are, here in a nutshell, folks, student loans. The bank lends a student money, charges an enormous rate of interest, sells the paper to the government or has it guaranteed by the government, and doesn't give any of the interest back. I would call that a bailout for banks. That is not a student loan program. It's a way to keep billions of dollars in the pockets of the banks who happen to have some of the best lobbyists in the country. That's where the system's broken. But that guy in Indiana 
who can't find a job because Harley Davidson's going overseas. We need to retrain him or her. We need to retrain them as people who are capable of doing computer interface, meaning that they can do systems control processes. And, and, and you can be 60 years old and be retrained. Mm -hmm. So the best city colleges in the country, of which we're blessed to have Santa Barbara City College here, because it's probably the best in the country, what they're doing is they're not only teaching kids coming out of high school, they're teaching adults how to get back in the labor force so they don't have to flip burgers. So basically you're saying we should be investing in the human capital. Correct. And Always. Anybody stay with that? Keep going yeah. on that line of thought. So what happens when you have a, quote, trade war? It's a lose-lose. The people you war against, in our case, China, Canada. I'm sorry, just, I fair disclosure, I'm a Canadian citizen, so I just want people to know I have a bias about Canada. But, but Canadians truly are the nicest people on the earth. I mean, they're the least offensive people. They're the least bombastic and, I mean, atavistic. They don't declare wars. They only go to war we make them. Yeah. To declare war on Canada? Really? I mean, what, what are you drinking in the morning pile? So to take Canada on, the European Union, China, all simultaneously, to what purpose? All those countries will get hurt, will get hurt the worst. So you get a company like Harley-Davidson that is going to build a factory overseas. And by the way, in retaliation now, Trump tweeted on them again yesterday, and he's trying to create their buyers in America to boycott them because they make motorcycles in Europe, or going to. Now get this. He's not saying don't buy the motorcycles made in Europe. He's saying don't buy any motorcycles, even the ones made in America, because they won't play ball with my trade policy, which, which will, isn't a policy. Which will just end up losing more jobs lose, in the lose, United lose, States. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is happening. And you're going to see it happen now in the labor markets. Let's talk about the benefits of free trade and what this, what, what free trade does for the economy. Why drop trade barriers instead of rising them up? Well, with the exception of multilateral trade agreements like TPP, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, with the exception of those multinational agreements, which have embedded them in them other economic drivers than just trade. I'll explain what I mean in a second. With those exceptions, when we have good multilateral trade relations, which we've had since 1995, largely because of the WTO, so the World Trade Organization was created by the United States in order to avoid trade wars. It's about to be blown up by the United States because we're creating this multilateral trade war. And I don't know where the WTO is going to come out of this, but I'm very concerned about it. And this is something we built, the U.S. built it, to protect us in a world where there were too many trade barriers. It's worked brilliantly if you look at the economy since 1995 to today, 2018. We've grown exponentially because of WTO, and we have an easy way to resolve trade disputes, which we never had before. What we need to do is to embrace the mechanism of the World Trade Organization, and with the exception of multilateral trade deals like the one, the TPP, which had embedded in it ways to give more power to multinationals. Specifically, the main clause in it that was terrible was Monsanto, which has now been sold to Bayer, the German company, but at that time, Monsanto was its own company. Monsanto wanted to bar the United States and other countries from refusing to sell glyophosphates, Roundup. And they put that in the TPP, they buried in there that if the country of origin, the U.S., allowed glyophosphates, so Roundup here, that no other country could ban it, even if it was cancer-causing. Now, it's going to get banned in the U.S. eventually anyway, because it is cancer -causing. It is cancer. And they just lost a $285 million chunk of it yesterday. Mm -hmm. So that sneaky provision, and there were a bunch of those in there, by the way. The TPP was full of those. 
I take Obama to task for that because he's a smart enough guy. He should have been able to see through those clauses in order to come up with a TPP that actually would have been neutral. And that's why a lot of progressives did not like the TPP, me included. However, if you have non-power-loaded clauses in a multilateral trade agreement, multilateral means amongst many countries, not one, you get this huge advantage because that freer trade will lift your economy and theirs. Why? Because what you get is a better utilization of labor. So you got the people who are good at sewing, sewing, and you got people who are good at sewing machines, making sewing machines. So that brings me to other trade agreements like NAFTA. Well, start with NAFTA. So NAFTA has been a huge success for the U.S. In fact, if anybody's got a legitimate beef about NAFTA, it would be the Mexicans. We basically decimated their tortilla industry. No, I mean, if, seriously, the, the joke yeah. is you the can't buy a tortilla mm -hmm. in Mexico that wasn't made with American corn. Mm -hmm. And how do we make our American corn? We use glyphosates and GMOs. And they don't. <laughs> and so our corn comes out cheaper, but I wouldn't eat it. So Mexico got ripped worse than they thought on some of its basic agricultural commodities. Mexico also got ripped because we did not step up to our responsibility to control the illegal drug trade on our side of the border, mm -hmm. which has caused Mexico to basically devolve into a, a nation full of war and gang, warlords. A narco state. A narco state, mm -hmm. or certainly a state where narco forces are fighting to control and succeeding to control in the vast majority of the country. We have a treaty, and what, no matter what Trump does or does not like, he does not have the executive power to cancel NAFTA. I'm not sure what people are telling him about he can't unilaterally walk away from NAFTA because that was a treaty approved by the United States Senate. So you can't unwind a treaty unless it has what's called a sunset clause, which is what he's trying to build into it. That would be a horrible idea because then what would happen is every treaty would become the subject of changing administrations. You know, one guy's attitude would change and the other guy would come in or vice versa. Now, go back to one other thing that's really an important point we have to understand. When the President of the United States issues trade tariffs against any country without the authorization of Congress, it is illegal, unless he does so, in this case Trump, for national security reasons. It's the only exemption. Otherwise, Congress has the duty to set all tariffs. And remember, when the Congress was conceived back in 1775, the idea of trade was central to the birth of the nation. And I'd like people to go read a little history. Well, the, the Boston Tea Party was about trade. It was about was trade, about a tariff on tea. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. But it gets even better. People forget that the first attempt to create a nation failed. We had the Articles of Confederacy, basically. We were a confederacy of the United States. And what happened is we realized there was one giant thing we forgot, the ultimate oops clause. And if you look at those articles and you look at the current U.S. Constitution, the number one biggest difference is there's a thing called the Interstate Commerce Clause. Okay. So what we did is we figured out that if the New Yorkers could stop buying stuff from Virginia and the Virginians could stop buying stuff from the Jerseyites, this whole union would break apart in a flash. In fact, it came up under a lot of people were erecting road barriers. They were collecting tariffs every you know, few mm -hmm. hundred yards. Every county was putting its own tariffs in place. And so what happened was Congress was coming to a halt. And the Founding Fathers recognized if they were to do that, there would be, United, there'd be no United States of America. Now that simple logic that was the basis of the United States of America 
is the basis upon what free trade should stand for in the world. And it makes me think of Brexit. Brexit. That's just, that's, Brexit is another word for insanity. But you know, the interesting thing about Brexit is it was ill-conceived. No one thoughtful could ever possibly support it. It's inconceivable it can work. And what's turning out to be the case is there is no Brexit plan. And theoretically, there's going to be a Brexit in 2019. And I don't believe that the Prime Minister is going to be able to put a negotiated deal, meaning England and the EU, European Union, are required to negotiate the Brexit exit. I don't believe England can. I think it's impossible. I think their fundamentals are too great. And what's going to happen is the Prime Minister, if she's still in office by then, which I doubt, will go back to the British public and say, we tried and we there's no way out that makes any sense, because there isn't. And the only way the Europeans will let us go is we pay this huge penalty, which we owe. And if we agree to the free transport of humans between, which is the reason you did Brexit in the first place, was really an immigration bill, or an immigration issue. And I think that what's going to come about is they're going to recognize and they're going to have a plebiscite and the British public is going to wake up and vote Brexit out. Hopefully they'll do that before they destroy their economy because, as you know, it's already unraveling. Mm -hmm. So the major banks, number one business in England, the number one producer of cash and power globally was their investment banks. The securities industry was all based in London and New York. Guess what? They left. Where did you they could, go? Paris. They went to the European Union. Okay, so now they're still in New York and they're in Paris. You could fire a cannon through some of those buildings on Canary Wharf and not hit anybody because they left. They're gone. And they're not coming back. And even when they vote Brexit down, it'll be a long time for them to come back because when you destroy people's confidence that you're going to be there tomorrow in some rational way, when you do something really crazy and bizarre like Brexit, a long time before people say, eh, okay, they, they learned a lesson, we'll come back. They ain't going to come back so easy. What will probably happen ultimately is slowly but surely after Brexit is removed from the, as a threat, to slowly start rebuilding. England will be in such a recession at that point, and the people will be paying such a penalty for this folly that they've engaged in. But since it'll be happening in a world that's already in recession, it might not stick out as such a sore thumb. But I'm telling you, it's, it's just it's so insane. Brexit makes no sense at all because, okay, this is absolutely the actual relevant to dollars. If Delaware was to declare it was leaving the United States because it was going to do its own trade deals, would you bet on Delaware or the rest of us on that one? You'd bet on the rest of us. You go, Delaware, come to your senses, man. You're this tiny little nothing. You know, you're a hiccup on the on the map. And you're going to tell me you're going to outtrade the sixth largest economy, California, and the ninth largest one, New York? No, you're going to get left in the dust. You're going to get swallowed. And you're going to get lost as a footnote to history. That's England and the EU. England's this tiny little island, which is living on its reputation more than its current productivity. Productivity's not bad, by the way. And what did it have that was absolutely unique that kept everybody invested? It was the doorway to Europe. So as some of you may know, our listeners, I've been on the board for almost 30 years of Taylor Brands. So we own several companies in the UK, several subsidiaries. But anyway, the point is, two years ago, I said to the rest of our board, I'm nervous. I'm getting nervous about this British thing. And, you know, if Britain does something crazy, what would be the advantage of being in the UK? if you don't have Europe to sell to. Now, we still own those companies, and I'm not telegraphing any of the markets here. What I'm saying is the question came up then, and we don't have the answer yet. Mm -hmm. In other words, like most multinational companies, we don't yet know how are we going to deal with the silliness. We do know this, though. The number one thing that attracted us to the UK wasn't the size of the market. 
It was the size of the European continent. It was the biggest market for our goods in the world, outside the U.S. and China. So it seems like having the stability of the environment that makes you able to make future decisions on how you're going to... Like Apple, and, and when you have something like a sunset clause to NAFTA, it destroys that confidence in the future. The um, only way you could do a sunset clause to NAFTA or any trade agreement is if it was so far in the future that it would be irrelevant. And I would argue if it was that far in the future, you're better off letting future senates decide whether they want to revoke it. See, if the treaty really started hurting us, and it hasn't. I mean, every independent economist, and I mean without exception, every independent economist would be happy to say NAFTA has been a huge net plus to the United States. And by the way, a net plus to Mexico, even though they got hurt, they got hurt and they less than they would have if they hadn't got into it. And it's been a good thing for Canada. But if you were to go to any 100 independent economists, any, any one of them, they'd all tell you NAFTA's a good thing. It's been very good for the United States. And they give you the numbers to prove it. And so the idea that we would leave NAFTA because the current potentate in the office who occupies the White House currently, wants to be the biggest bully on the playground. And he wanted to be able to prove he was the biggest bully on the playground. So he started slapping people around, like China, like Canada, like Mexico, and like the European Union. It will backfire, as it always does on every bully. It takes a while, but it does backfire, and it's going to backfire on, on the current administration. One of the reasons Trump keeps giving for trying to get out of trade agreements or for imposing tariffs is because of trade deficits. He talks about deficits as a major negative indicator for our economy. What would you say about that? Okay, so let's take the biggest trade deficit we have, which is China. And by the way, if Donald Trump were listening to this radio show, he would probably understand less than 20% of it. You're talking about someone with very little sophistication. He's not somebody that you teach how to think. He's somebody you feed lines to. He's an actor. He's an entertainer. He's a television personality. He's a producer. But he is not a thoughtful, enlightened, well-educated human being capable of comprehending the issues that we're talking about on the show, even at the shallow depth we're talking about. Start with that. Number two, he misunderstands when he talks about a trade deficit with Canada. Okay, He's actually wrong. We have a trade surplus with Canada. Now, why would he say we have a trade deficit? Because he doesn't understand what a trade deficit is. He was looking at, do they send more physical stuff to us than we send to them? And the answer is, by a small percentage, they send more physical stuff than we send to them. What do we send to them? We send to them not only lots of physical stuff, but a whole bunch of intellectual property and services. So we send them accountants and lawyers. So what we send them is intellectual property and, again, higher value added for our time stuff. It's much more valuable than if when you send me a piece of timber. Now, if you look at the trade between Canada and the United States, we clearly have a trade surplus in heaven under NAFTA, running a trade surplus. Why he would say that it is a deficit is either because he lies a lot, which he does, or because he doesn't understand what he's saying, which is usually the case, or because it's convenient at the moment and he'll say something different tomorrow. It doesn't really matter. So if I stayed with Canada, I would say, gee, you really want to have a trade war with Canada when most of the lumber we use to build our houses comes from Canada? And if we don't have a booming housing business, that's one of the worst things that can happen to our economy because we really need housing. And if the price of housing goes up 20% because, A, we have a trade war going on with Canada, so the cost of timber gone up, and B, all the other stuff we're using to make those houses is getting marked up because everybody else is marking their stuff up to us, like 
The Germans have control software that we use for air conditioning and heating, mm-hmm. et cetera. You put that into a bag and you go, geez, our price of housing could go up 15, 20% because of silly trade war, which means it's less affordable to us. Right. Now, the deficit. The point behind trade deficits in, I like the case of China. So let's talk about China. In the case of China, we do have a true trade deficit, meaning if you take the total of all the goods and services we send them and the total of all the goods and services they send us, they send us more than we send them by a long shot. Because of that, what they also do is they take all the extra money from all the stuff they sent us that we bought, and they go use it to buy our treasury bonds. So in effect, they are subsidizing our consumption of their stuff. Why would they do that? Because they're trying to employ hundreds of millions of people. And the greediest consumers on the planet live in America. That's just the truth of it. So they got to have a customer. And the customer can't afford to buy all this stuff, even as cheap as they make it. So how do you get it so that Walmart can keep shoveling money at China to buy all that cheap stuff so that Walmart can sell it to us? And the answer is, you got to have a deficit. And the deficit of this country, which, by the way, is not driven by trade. The biggest deficit of this country is driven by tax, the tax bill. So you're going to get, well, they claim $1.5 trillion is what they're going to get as the cost of the recent tax bill. No way in heck is it going to come up $1.5 trillion. It'll Wait, be at least $2 trillion. Is, are you talking about a trade deficit? I'm or? talking about where does the deficit, because people get the word trade deficit confused with deficit. Right. Which is a budgetary deficit. Mm-hmm. So our deficits... And by the way, it's going to hit $1 trillion by 2019, and it might hit sooner now. Astronomical levels was $830 billion under Obama shooting through the sky. And by the way, it came down dramatically under Clinton, came down under Obama, and it's going through the roof now mm-hmm. under the current administration. People confuse the trade deficit with the deficit. So in the trade deficit, you're the vendor of the products that you send me. You're China. And you take the extra profit you made by employing people making stuff for us so that it's cheaper for us to buy, thereby boosting the consumer economy. Remember, three quarters of this economy is consumption. We stop consuming, this kind of economy goes to a halt. And they take that extra profit that China makes, and they come back to the bond market, and they buy U.S. treasuries. They're our biggest creditor by far. Why do they do that? Because there's only one place big enough to put all that money, and that's us. So we're this unique, unbelievable, have been, it's about to end, have been in this unbelievably unique situation since World War II, where when we buy more stuff than we can afford to pay for, we print the money and sell it to the foreigners who made the stuff in the first place. It's like, if you told people this would happen, they said, ah, you'd never get away with that. It's almost like that play the producers. Right, (laughs) yeah. Even when you buy more than you can afford to pay for it, you still win? Yeah. It's called the trade deficit being converted into the current accounts, and the current accounts get converted into debt, and the debt is the foreign debt of the United States that we then sell to those same people. And that's why China's our biggest creditor. So, in other words, a trade deficit with China isn't necessarily a negative oh, listen, thing. I gotta, if China really wanted to hurt us, they wouldn't be messing around with trade deficits. One day they don't show up at the bond market to buy, this country goes to crater. We would be smashed into smithereens. Why don't they do that? Because they have so many of our dollars. There's this old saying when you're in business, if you owe the bank a little bit of money, you're in trouble. If you owe the bank a lot, they're your partner. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they're the bank. <laughs> well, speaking of currency and economic woes, there's been a lot in the news the last few days about Turkey and their economic crisis. We've talked a little bit before about inflation in the context of the Turkish lira. And there's other cur- currencies which are fluctuating in Indonesia and India. I just was wondering... It fluctuates generously with the plummeting. Okay, plummeting, yes. Mm-hmm. Dropping wildly. You know, we've talked a little bit about this before, but why 
does, why should we care? Why does it affect okay. the United States economy? Okay, so first of all, there is a small possibility, I do not think a large one, but a small possibility, that these countries, we used to call them the third world, now we call them developing economies. Mm -hmm. These countries, and, you, and that's India, it's Malaysia, it's Brazil, it's Turkey, and I could list a few more. All those countries have a requirement built into the growth curve they've been on. So they've been participating in a growing global economy for a number of years now. And in order to participate in that growing economy, they have attracted large amounts of foreign investment. That's what all those countries have in common. They're all dependent on large amounts of foreign investment in order for them to economically run their economies. When the currency of that country, Turkey, plummets, people go, uh-oh, the Turks aren't going to be able to pay their money back they owe into the international banking community because that debt's not priced in Turkish lira. That's priced in U.S. dollars. So today, for Turkey to pay back the debt that it was going to pay back a year ago, it's way, way more expensive, and probably they're not capable of it. In effect, they're bankrupt. By the way, the only country in the world who doesn't believe that interest rates going up tamps down inflation is Turkey. So don't forget, Turkey got into this mess before Trump started doing sanctions. Turkey's been a basket case for two years now, because Erdogan puts some friend of his to be the run, of the, to run the bank and actually believed that if they raised interest rates somehow it would create inflation when the opposite is true. So when you know that, if you're a part of the international financial community, you go, uh-oh, Turkey's going down. Who else has been doing that? Oh my God, India's been doing it. Now India's a unique case I'm going to come back to because I think India's got a way out. And you go, okay, India, the rupee has plummeted because they need direct investment. And without direct investment, India's economy doesn't function. So let's sell the rupee. And then you go around the world and you do that to Malaysian currency and you do that to Brazilian real, etc. With respect to all those developing economies, that is actually likely to occur, meaning that their economies will go through a tremendous pain when their currency plummets like that and they become international debtors. We saw, I've seen this recently, when the Greeks were unable to service right. their debt and it mm -hmm. caused this massive amount of austerity. In fact, the austerity that the Germans still prefer, which I don't, is a hangover from that fear. And by the way, why does India possibly escape it? India possibly escapes because the, the direct foreign investment going into India is actually supported by a dramatically growing economy. What India is doing is educating its people, developing a competitor to the United States in, in technology and high tech and in software and software development. And so there's an argument that I would make that India will continue to attract foreign investment because there's a good payoff there. And as that happens, the Indian rupee will recover. Now, the problem with the Indian rupee today is also that the BJP, which is the priority of Modi, is also causing itself a lot of problems because it is hiccuping over the rights of Muslims in the Hindu nation. And that's starting to hurt India, and that's, that is going to hurt them. But I don't think enough to cut off foreign investment because people see India as this massive rising economy. It's the largest democracy in the world, and India has a huge middle class now and growing, mm -hmm. and it needs everything. And people who are investing in India are doing very well with their returns. So I don't believe that India is in the same jeopardy as, say, Brazil, or certainly Turkey, or Malaysia. And Malaysia has other problems as do one of these countries. So when Turkey goes belly up? Well, no, the theory you asked was, what is yeah. the, should, why should we care? It's because yeah. if a bunch of those little developing economies go down together, they can trigger a global recession. Okay. They won't this time because there are bigger fish getting fried that will trigger that recession first. When that recession gets triggered, 
the pain that's already going on in those developing countries will further tighten the global negative spiral. So the recession will be deeper and longer because they have already fallen down economically and will continue to slide faster in the face of a global recession. If global growth goes anywhere from zero to one percent next year, which I don't think it will, I think it'll stay up above that, but barely, you could have a compounding effect where a lot of developing economies would go down and then all of a sudden you could have a ripple effect. I don't think that's what's going to cause this next recession. I think this next recession has got much bigger problems happening, including what's going on in the U.S. economy. So the U.S., which has been the engine of growth for the last, well, since 2008, the U.S. is going to go into recession next year. As it does, that will drag down global growth. The European Union will follow us almost immediately into negative growth. They're almost there now. Canada will follow us almost immediately. Mexico will follow us immediately. And after that, it doesn't really matter because everybody's in the soup together. And China will probably coast along at 4% growth. I would think 4 to 5, which is pretty phenomenal because we can't get to 4%. But, you know, in a crisis, China can do 4%. We'll go to negative. And I, I think you're going to see people like Russia, which is already in free fall. They're going to stay worse than ever. And you may even have civil unrest in Russia eventually because of it. And then you've got situations like what's going to happen to the rest of the global economy. And so people like Canada, for example, to go back to them, they'll have to do their best to try and rebalance their economy and rely less on exports to people like Americans. So they won't sell as much timber, and that's going to cost them in the pocketbook. So their pocketbook's going to have less money. That's how they get into the recession, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And once that starts down that path, global, the global growth starts to contract. And as the global growth contracts, the weakest players hurt first. So that's Turkey and the growing economies of the underdeveloped world. Next hurt is the people who are dependent on a glowing global economy for their, to maintain their stability. That would be Europeans. Okay, got to have growing a global economy or they won't be able to do enough to the Germans to export. The last, but the biggest, the epicenter of the decline will be the economy that started at that source. And then all hell breaks loose after that one. I have one question about foreign investment. Well, you're describing Turkey's economic woes and the, the drop of foreign investment there. It reminded me a lot about what you're talking about and how China has been investing in the U.S. economy through bonds. Is that, in a way, foreign investment in our economy? Or yeah, how it's, is that it's, different? It's, cap, it's called the capital flow. It's ca right. Yeah, it's a flow of capital. So it, it is a direct investment, and it will decline because they'll have fewer dollars to invest. I don't think they're going to pull out entirely because they don't want the whole thing to go upside down, and they would hurt real badly if it did. So they'll continue to replace their debt, but at decreasing levels. And at some point, and I can't tell you whether it's going to be five years from today or ten years from today or two years from today, at some point the U.S. dollar stops being the global reserve currency. And when that happens, we're out the door. We, we are on our backs worse than the Great Depression. Because the only thing that allows us to print more money than wealth we create is the fact that we control the game. And what the current administration is doing is breaking up the game we control, which means that we won't be allowed to print more money than we can justify with the value we create. And that means everybody's going to have to pay the price. Speaking of gamesmanship, yeah, um, we were talking earlier about the Iran deal and, and the sanctions that the Trump administration is threatening to reinstate. Well, they did. They did reinstate them. Will enforce other countries... Are they going to enforce the other, other countries? So. Yeah. so, so far, the group of five, which is the U.S., is now out of it. It's another group of four, which I think is 
Russia, the EU, Britain, forget who the fourth one is. When they imposed sanctions on Iran, it was because they did so as a collective exercise. When they released the sanctions, they released as a group. What the European community has said, and the Russians, by the way, as well, we're not going to follow your lead, U.S. We're going to keep trading with Iran, which I think is a good thing for a whole bunch of reasons. I think that we've already seen the American perfidy with that Iranian deal has already caused the conservative element of the Iranian government to amass way more power now than they had when we did the deal. So we basically reinforced their worst elements, their most conservative retrograde elements have been reinforced. And that's really sad because we were making progress in Iran. So the Europeans have said, we're not going to go along with reimposing sanctions yet. We're going to try and resist the United States. First, they've appealed to the U.S. saying, we want you to not hold our banks responsible if we trade with the Iranians. My guess is that this administration will be dumb enough to say, yes, we will. At which point, the Europeans are going to face an interesting dilemma. Are they able and willing to go it alone without the U.S. in the international banking circle? And it may be they're very close to doing that. If they could actually create a consortium of Russia, China, the developing world, well, basically the United Nations except us, which I think they can, I believe they could construct an alternative global banking system fairly quickly. And if they did so, that would have the impact of a massive recession globally, but it would also be that we'd be displaced and I don't think we'd ever come back to global prominence as a nation. So we're playing with our future in a big way right now and not playing smart. We've learned the hard way that there are weaknesses in our democracy, that we're capable of having things happen here either because of the, the massive amalgamation of power and money, which has distorted our politics. I'm thinking of Citizens United. I'm thinking of the way that our, so much of our economy is now run by lobbyists and K Street, lobbyist location in Washington, that it's almost like Rome, you know? Power, you're middle saying power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. We've had pretty much absolute power since 1945. And we used it very benign way all those years. And so it really worked for us. And I think that we forgot that the reason it was working was not because we were the, the biggest bully. It was because we were the biggest saint. Mm -hmm. We did more good stuff around the world than anybody. And people appreciate it. The, the West is not so much a description of where our countries are as it is a description of a state of mind. And so what we really did is we sold a dream and people bought the dream. And then we delivered on the dream. And they go, wow, this is a great dream. Pinker has a new book out in which he talks about how many more countries went Democrat up until last year. That are better angels. Yeah. Is that the book? Yeah. 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 And basically, we went from almost no democracies in Latin America to almost all of them, and now they're reverting. We went from no democracy in Malaysia, no democracy in Spain. People forget. Those are fascist countries. Portugal is all post-World War II. And so what happens is we rebuilt the world after World War II in this really benign way that worked for everybody, but worked particularly well for us. Mm -hmm. The Americans did great. And what this administration is doing is systematically destroying. Now, that to me is the question. And if our democracy was capable of being corrupted that badly, 80 years of global prosperity and being a benighted global citizen could be destroyed because we couldn't control our own politics domestically, then that tells me that having one country in charge after a time is probably a bad idea. And, you know, if Rome had not have fallen, it's true there would have been no Dark Ages, but then again, there would have been no Renaissance. 
So what's going to happen is a whole, <laughs> the exact opposite of what Trump wants. There's going to be a whole multilateral realignment that occurs coming out of this next recession. And it's going to be a massive recession. And it's going to realign to the point where the U.S. will no longer be, and you can count on this, folks, it will no longer be the dominant player it is today. It will be one amongst several. And it will be required to execute its strategy in concert in a team-like way. And to me, that's a possibility. Does that mean when people get elected that shouldn't be, doesn't all go crazy? Um, we're talking about this coming recession, talking about the dollar and threats to the global economy. So other currencies are not such a great place to park your wealth. What would you do to create a bulwark? I mean, how would you protect yourself financially? The most important thing to remember is in the recession that's coming, the more in self-sufficient one is, the better you will do. I'll give you an example. If you are dependent upon the utility for your electricity, you will hurt worse than if you own your own electricity because you've got solar on the roof. Okay? If you are capable of having what used to be called in World War II a victory garden, you know, which is 10, 20 square feet, where you grow some vegetables for your family, if you're capable of growing food, and as you know, there's a big movement now, which I'm really supportive of in Detroit, where they're saying, let's take vacant lots mm -hmm. and let's turn them into miniature farms. Urban farming. Urban farming. If you can create means of production of your own sustenance, you will ride this next mess out. So the best investment you could probably make would be a hoe and a garden hose. Okay. Now, if you get past that, you say, well, what else can I do to try and protect myself? I would say that to the extent that you own your own home, and I wouldn't pay it off if you have a mortgage, by the way. That's where I would be. I would try to control the place where I live, the food that I eat, and the energy I use. Because when you think of home, food, energy, those are where your money's got to go. So invest in solar panels. Yes, clearly. Have a garden on your Have property. a garden and learn how to garden. And learn how to use it. Yeah, and the bigger the garden, the better. And if you have surplus, great. Share it with your neighbors, and when, at some point you'll be selling that for cash, whatever cash is. I think there's a real good argument that coming out of this next recession, we may have such a collapse. This is an argument Lloyd Blank Fine has made as chairman of Goldman. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones has made it. I made it on the show last month. I think this recession is going to be so severe that the international monetary system could literally have a major, major, major challenge. In which case, having your money in a bank isn't going to be any better than owning cyber currency like Ripple, where you can buy into an international payment system that could very well become a replacement in the event the international monetary system is as severely stressed as I think it's going to be. So, you could buy some Ripple. I believe in buying a little gold. Someone called me this morning, a good friend, and was asking me about my gold recommendation and he wanted to know how far to carry it. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. If you go to a local dope shop and you buy a cocaine scale, They'll sell you the scale that can measure things in grams, like very small amounts. Get yourself a good razor blade and a bar of gold. <laughs> a bar of gold is going to be too much for a loaf of bread. So you're going to have to shave off a little gold. And you're going to put it in a lopium scale. And so you can sell, because you know what the price of gold is, you're going to be able to sell enough gold, which would be a little bigger than a speck, to get a <laughs> loaf of bread. But, but if, if gold continues to be the means of exchange for people in crisis, as it has historically for millennia, and I can make an argument that having some gold works. Uh, I certainly would not be invested, as you know, in the stock market. I think that's been a good decision for months and months now that we made. And I think that it's um, not likely that you'll do well 
right now, if you put your money in an American bank, because the currency is at an all-time high, the first hiccup in your currency is going to drop too. So let me give you an example. Let's say you own Turkish Lira in a bank a year ago, and you were getting 2-3% of your money, which might sound good because that's more than inflation, because inflation is almost 3%. It's 2.1. 2.9? 2.9, 2.5, something like that, yeah. So you go, okay, I'm getting 3% on inflation. I'm ahead of inflation. Except what happens when the lira drops 60 70%, you get wiped out. Did you take your money to the bank? No, it's just the money's worth less. It won't buy as many loaves of bread. And that's ultimately what money is. It's a means of exchange. You evaluate it by what you can get with it. So right now, I would be in cash. I wouldn't be in securities. I would not be in long-term bonds of any kind. Anything longer than six months is dangerous. And I would be looking for ways to use my money to maximize the amount of control I can have over that physical asset in a situation of deep recession. I'll give you another example. I was offered an opportunity to buy an office building recently here in town. Turned it down. Loved the building. Thought the price was too high. Someone asked me, why is it too high? I said, because in the recession, it's going to be 20% less. So if I had bought that building for $2 million, it would cost me $400,000. If I wait till the recession comes, and fewer people need offices, then I'll go buy the building. Because I will be deploying cash in a way that I can use instead of paying rent in this office where we're sitting right now. So that's, that's how you can readjust yourself. But for the vast number of people listening to this program who don't have a lot of liquidity to worry about, and if they do, call me separately and we'll talk about it. But with very limited liquidity, you want to be in cash. You want to say, okay, what can I, for example, if you have credit card debt, pay it off right now, because inflation is going to take those debts higher. If you really are afraid that your car is going to break down in the next seven or eight years, get a new one real, right away, cheap, or used one, even cheaper. Uh, if you think your, um, your house is not going to make it through the next winter because the rains are going to come through your roof, and fix the roof. But basically, use your cash now very conservatively, keep in cash, Gold is not a bad thing. I know I don't recommend people buy gold bars because then they can get, you know, you can get shot. People come to here, you got gold. But you can own GLD, which is an ETF that trades gold, and you can own that as a way to hold. So there's a lot of different things you can do. I would also be very careful. People who thought that oil would never go back up again and bought these monster trucks that consume it, you know, guzzling it. Bad mistake now. Now I see that. What a mistake that was. Will oil come down? Yes, oil prices will come down over the long haul quite a bit. But in the meantime, every day that you fill up, you're paying extra cash that could have gone into your savings. So those are the things I would do with my money right now. And I wouldn't spend anything today that wasn't essential. I'd go to cash and say, say, keep your powder dry. Let's see what happens. So let me leave this with you. All that negative news, I believe, because I am basically an optimist, Everybody listening to this program should sign up for our free service, The Optimist Daily. Why? Because if you're going to deal with the stuff that I deal with every day, it's pretty negative right now. You want to start your day off with a positive thought. If this negativity is going to hit you when you walk out the door, you better have a positive thought in the morning to start. So please, take our free subscription service to The Optimist Daily. Get five pieces of good news every morning, Monday through Friday. And that'll give you something to think about that's positive when you go through the day and look at the stories that unfortunately you're going to see on all the conventional media in all the economic data. That stuff's only going to get worse from here on out. So start your day with positive thoughts so that we can reverse this. Now, I was asked this morning by a very smart guy, is it possible to turn this around? And the answer is yes.
Absolutely. Even at this late date, we can turn this around. But we'd have to get smart real fast. And unfortunately, we don't appear to be getting that much smarter. So what the Optimist Daily will do is we'll help you figure out how you can do better for yourself with a positive thought. And by knowing about all the positive things that are happening that you can get involved in, that will help you achieve more of what you want for yourself. Because nobody wants to live in doom and gloom land, including me. That's the Optimist Daily at www.optimistdaily.com. Or you can also write to info at worldbusiness.org with any comments, any questions, suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. Thank you, everybody. Happy to be with you today.